In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Enifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello. And today I think I'm going to be George Orwell in this conversation. Very... Uh. Very excited about this conversation. I have very mixed feelings. So uh, I'm a technology advocate and enthusiastic user of technology, and I'm also a big fan of George Orwell. So we'll see where this goes. Awesome. Today's guest is head of smart buildings at WSP UK. He focuses on designing, delivering digital real estate transformation and human-centered internet of thing technologies within the built environment. He was elected as a fellow of the RSA in 2017 and named as the Institute of Mechanical Engineers Young Visionary in 2016-2017 for his work in creating the world's most connected building. Our guest sits on SIPC's Intelligent Buildings Group, is a keynote speaker at International Industry Events, is a co-author of the Encyclopedia of Sustainable Technologies. Welcome to the show, Mr. Matthew Marson. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Matthew, you're a graduate from the Structural Engineering and Architectural Engineering Program at the University of Shelfield and the City Technology College in Kinghurst, where you studied languages, geography, physics, math, visual arts, architecture, and theory of knowledge. Your accomplishments are many, and for us, it's not often that Adam and I get someone who is trained as an architect and is also a chartered engineer. We always ask our high achievers to tell us their story, so Matthew, what's yours? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I suppose uh, as a kid at school, I always wanted to be an architect. And uh, it's because my maths teacher introduced me to Corbusier. And I particularly liked that as someone that was uh, deeply passionate about the arts and almost inventing a painting movement, he cared a lot about the aesthetic of the engineer and how important it was to have things that were efficient and of human scale. So I suppose it was uh, in wanting to be a bit like Corbu that I went to Sheffield because of the program they had where you could essentially graduate as both an architect and an engineer. And so from there, did a little bit of work experience, uh, an architectural firm, and uh, actually really hated it. It was awful. So that was, was the kind of... <laughs> I was the dream killed. And so I uh, then sold my soul to the devil and went to work at an investment bank. And yeah, didn't really enjoy that too much Too kind of complained to HR that I'm not the wolf of Wall Street. This is not what you promised. <laughs> and from there, met some consultants because they tried to put me on a, another project to applicate me is how then I moved <laughs> across to uh, the management consulting firm Accenture which, yeah, was where I really started uh, to think, well, okay, maybe I do like buildings. I got it wrong. So started talking with some of the managing directors there about how we could get technology into buildings. And yeah, it kind of went from there, really, until, you know, sort of fast forward. And I'm uh, now at at WSP, where um, I look after what we do in uh, smart places in the UK and the Middle East, and are helping sort of shape our global strategy as to how we uh, service our clients with technology in the built environment. So uh, yeah, I've got a super fun job. (laughs) Fantastic. Okay, so your dream was killed. And 
And how did you recover from that? I mean, what? I mean, obviously you've ended up at WSP. And for our listeners, you know, maybe you could explain who WSP because it's not exactly a small corner store operation. It's one of the biggest firms in the world. Your dream was killed, and you ended up at one of the big companies. Tell us about that. Yeah. So WSP, for those that don't know, is a multi-services engineering firm. I think we've got about 48,000 people globally. And I think we are the largest engineering firm that does kind of sole consultancy. And I suppose to how this kind of came about, I think was probably from my project experience at Accenture. So that was looking at things like heating, ventilation and air conditioning analytics that we've done for a large kind of networking giant or uh, for an international facilities manager, we were looking at a digital strategy is how they could use IoT technologies in order to reduce their cost to serve. Or one of the projects that I really loved doing was for the National Children's Hospital of Ireland, where we were looking about how you could wear some kind of uh, band that you get as a child, where the sort of whole premise of the project was, if you're a child and you're sick, that sucks. How could it be more like Disneyland, for instance? So we were looking at how we could integrate a set of building services and other kind of front end things just to try and make that a little bit better for them. So, yeah, I think it was the sort of combination of those sorts of things that sort of WSP thought, oh, you know what, maybe we should uh, start to do some of that. So how big is the small buildings practice at WSP where you are now? Oh, I think it depends how you measure it. We've probably got a group of kind of 20 core smarties, as I like to call them, across uh, the UK and the Middle East. And uh, yeah, other teams here in uh, Canada, which is where I'm recording this from today, in the US, we've got a building technology systems practice out of Australia and a group of some really clever folks in the Nordics, uh, based out of Sweden, and they look at things more on a community scale. So uh, yeah, there's all sorts of activity going on at the minute. Well, just for our listeners, I'm British and Matthew's British, and smartest to us are lovely little candy confections, right? Yes. As, as soon as you said that, I had a major flashback to my youth there. So thank you for that. So that's interesting. I mean, sometimes, you know, everyone says a career is all about planning and making the right steps, but also it's about timing, right? And it sounds like your timing could be fantastic here in terms of being in this part of WSP at this moment in time with this convergence of technology and the what we in the fourth industrial revolution now, the information technology revolution. Now, so what is the current state of the art, would you say, for buildings? And I ask that because I find I'm a big fan of the Internet of Things, but, you know, do I want my toaster connected to the Internet? Probably not. But the Internet of Things in terms of the application of buildings and making them run more efficient, actually give out real-world analytics, I think is a really great application. So what? how would you describe the current state of the art at the moment, say in the UK, for example? Uh, okay, I don't think we should talk about technology because I don't think that's what excites people when we right. think about what a smart place is. Instead, I'd like to say the state of the art is something that gives meaning. And what I mean by this is I think the built environment is now at a point where it's going to go through the exact same pains that banks are now coming out of the end of as they sort of decide what they are to us in the world now. So probably in the past, banks probably only competed with each other on, say, the services they offered, the products, interest rates. But then technology came along and they had a set of experiential competitors, like the fact I don't need their hardware to make a payment, I can just use Apple Pay or how PayPal undermined them 
by allowing you to send money for free to anyone in the world. Or maybe even one of the challenger banks that we have in the UK called Monzo, which doesn't even have a phone number, never mind uh, a branch that you can visit. But the experience of it is so good and the analytics it gives me, the little chat function, that I'm happy to accept that. And then I also think there's a whole set of perceptual competitors like Netflix just knows what I want to watch next, whereas HSBC keeps sending me pointless kind of leaflets for credit cards I'm not interested in. Or Amazon can get me a trampoline delivered this afternoon, but Barclays is going to take five working days to replace my credit card. So my whole set of expectations have changed. And we're taking these impressions we're getting from other digital services, and we're now bringing them into the built environment. I mean, even if you just take the workplace, you used to go to the workplace to use and abuse the technology that was there. Now, there's no point because I've got better stuff at home. Like, when did that happen? So for me, the state of the art is about providing a set of services or experiences that give me meaning in the same way, I suppose, that my iPhone, for instance, although you and I have got the exact same hardware, I probably use mine for different stuff than you, and that is what gives it meaning. That is a very interesting perspective, actually, because I've always been, as an, with engineering background, focused on the tech, right? But as you say, the emergent property of technology is an experience. That's a really interesting way of doing that, actually. Exactly, think, and no one cares how the sausage is made. Yeah, yeah. Right. That, but, go on, Robert. Yeah, I mean, Matthew, I mean, both Adam and I have been somewhat, well, that's probably an understatement. We've both been very critical of, of, <laughs> yeah. of, te- of technology as a solution to bad buildings. And let me, let me just sort of explain where we're, where we're coming from on this and why we're glad to have you on the show, is that we see a lot of internet of technology players offering products and services as a way to improve buildings, but they're without substance. In other words, if you have a bad building, you know, overglazed, really high window to wall ratios, poor performing glass, poor performing enclosure, bad indoor environments due to selection of interior finishes, terrible sound, terrible, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And these manufacturers come along with this widget, whiz bang, they, they flog it as an internet of technology solution to bad buildings. And yet they seem like they're disconnected from the root of the problem, which is the bad building to begin with. And no amount of technology is going to fix that. That's sort of where we're coming from on it. So we're, we're, not, we're not opposed to the Internet of Technology. We're definitely opposed to the messaging of Internet of Technology by manufacturers that fail to understand the problems. Do you have a comment on that? Yeah. I agree. I find that, well, it's, it's challenging, right? OEMs, um, so the people that manufacture the stuff that go in our risers, in our plant rooms, in our ceilings, have been used to a world where they can manufacture whatever they like and charge for specialist services in order to commission it properly or to access the data that it's inherently generating. And sort of digital has come along with its open standards and people that like open source and have disrupted that. And they're being really defensive to protect that revenue that they're used to, which is is fair enough. But And I kind of find the way that they're doing it is just adding a sort of shinier UI that goes on top of their kind of closed protocol system. And they're effectively, for the sake of bad buildings, rolling the turd in glitter. (laughs) Mm. I like that. Yeah, it's not polishing it. It's just rolling it into glitter. I like that. Yeah. 
I like that. That's uh, Adam. We're gonna have to adopt that slogan: "Rolling the turd and glitter." I, I like think that. that might be the money shot for this episode. <laughs> I, 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 I think so. I think so. <laughs> this story brought to you by "Rolling the turd and glitter." A message approved by Adam Muggleton and Robert yeah. and Matthew Marson. <laughs> All right. So how? I mean. When you're in a big engineering practice, I've experienced this in my work life. I used to work for Arup for a while. So Arup was, it's a great firm to work for. And there's lots of these, these niche groups inside Arup. But how does, so in WSP, you've got buildings group, you've got mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, technologists, and you've got this smart building group. So how do the other sort of, let's say, more established, older, more fundamental practice groups deal with you guys? Do they treat you as a bit of a threat or are you embraced? How do they react to this? I think if I'm speaking honestly, it's probably a bit of a mixed bag, dependent on the individual engineer. But overall, I think the sentiment is really positive because I suppose the way that I tackle this is not a, oh, your stuff is no longer relevant. We don't need you anymore. It's all about technology. In (laughs) fact, it's about looking at how you sort of pivot the direction of the skills that we have, that we're known for, that we're really good at, and adding just a slight new spin to it. Because it's not that physics has changed. It's just the way that we're operating some of the machinery is or the things that people are looking for out of it. I just see it as a, a slight direction shift, that's all. And how do clients, I mean, WSP's client book is obviously huge and AAA as well. So how are, how are clients responding to the smart building group? Are they seeing it as a sort of gimmick or do you think they're going to come to it? Initially, yeah, I'd say there's a lot of people are dubious because of all of the smart buildings conferences out there that exist where you've got the OEMs polishing as we (laughs) sort of rolling the turd in glitter. And they just don't believe it because the claims that some people make are just ridiculous. You know, my sensor makes toast, it's clairvoyant. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, maybe on your deployment of 30 sensors that you've done, but I can't put that in, you know, Europe's largest skyscraper, can I? And you've not really thought this through. So I suppose that they always approach it with uh, trepidation and it's about taking them through the sort of process of talking about outcomes and not technology that I'm finding really important. So one thing that I've done for my UK and Middle East Smarties is I've put them on a program that I've called Smart School, where for a week they spent their mornings and evenings with me going through technology. Like, what is the platform? What are the bits and bobs that make this? How does reverse Bluetooth beaconing or whatever work? And then through the day, I sent them on a design thinking academy, which is a set of methodologies where you are dogged about the user being the true north of everything that you do. So they went Mm. through a, a whole set of methodologies so that they could do some proper requirements gathering. Because it's all about, at the end of the day, what is the experience that a person has when they come to this building? That's ultimately the success of an asset in the built environment for me. Matthew, you you said something that's really important. I'm going to get you to repeat it. The user is the true north of what? Say that again. The user is the true (laughs) north. So we need to be dogged about the user being like the true north of who we're designing for. Exactly. Uh, Technical excellence isn't always needed in cases where you might want to drop that back for a better user experience. And I think that is what we're really trying to push at WSP is this idea of holistic engineering. So the fact that we could be entirely excellent across all of the disciplines that might be working on a project often means that something has to give somewhere. And in some cases, you need to work together to work out where the best compromise is. And if, for whatever reason, 
that we think we might want to be a little bit less technical expert on, on something in order to do a step change on something else, then that's something as engineers we need to sit down and work through. Adam, I'm loving this. I'm loving this interview. I mean, in the, in the first ten minutes, we've we've got rolling the turd and glitter, and the user, right? Which is we both agree on that. And the user is too north of who we are designing for. Two really important pieces of information in the first ten minutes, yeah. right? You know, Matthew, I have a um, my philosophy in my own engineering practices. We design for people. Good buildings follow. Our focus is entirely on the people. We, in fact, when we work with clients, we actually use the person as our true north, as you pointed out, and we design outward from the person as opposed to traditional practice, which is design the enclosure architecturally for the aesthetics and then work inwards to the different mechanical, electrical, and interior systems. And then the, then the occupant becomes, oh, yeah, right. Then there's a person inside of it, right? And <laughs> Yeah, I this that message that you just said, user is the true north of who we are designed for, is brilliant. Yeah, just to yeah. Uh, underscore that point, as a ex property development manager for Blue Land, I mean they were successful because they came from a user first background, and in my experience, most jobs go off the rails from the get go because the user requirements are really poorly defined. You know, client mm. comes in and says, "Give me a skyscraper, give me a hotel." Well, what does that mean? Oh, give me a lead gold hotel. That means even less. You know, so. If, as a practice, WSP are really pulling out the user requirements in the early design phase and documenting that, that is effectively a competitive advantage, certainly an advantage in outcome. So kudos to that. I hope so. Yeah. It was my New Year's resolution this year. If a client is not willing to spend two weeks with me to work out what SMART means to them, then they're probably gonna, it's going to be a failed project for me. Yeah, because you've wow. got to get the expectations lined up as well, right? Particularly when you're at the bleeding edge of where buildings are going. Expectation management is a key, key thing. Yeah, it's just as you say, some of the briefs we get is, oh, can you make it a smart building? It's like, okay, well, what's that? Is that three scoops of smart or just some sprinkles on top? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you were better than me. I was thinking, is that one smart toaster or two for the internet? (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. That is awesome. Okay, so have you got, are there any... Let's just rephrase that question. Are there any great examples or any working examples out there? What buildings can you point to at the moment that sort of represent the bleeding edge of where this is going? That's a tough one. So there are probably a lot of buildings out there that have little bits of functionality, but I don't think there is one yet that has gone sort of, you know, truly massive into it. So I suppose everyone knows the edge in Amsterdam. I think we're, we're kind of sick of talking about that, particularly as that's a sort of example of a smart building that doesn't tie everything together with a platform, which my understanding is now that the kind of legal battles of data ownership have been worked out is something they'll be looking to uh, sort of retrofit afterwards. But I suppose you've got, uh, let me think, Deloitte's new building in London at One New Street Square has a platform which they're able to do a lot of desk utilization stuff on. They're able to do some energy analytics. I think there's some really interesting demos down at Tycho's building in Cork. And then obviously there's uh, Accenture's The Dock in Dublin, where we had really tried to throw everything in the kitchen sink at it to see uh, what was possible in terms of the you know technology and the built environment. I mean, we were even looking at building a kind of business Tinder. So uh, we'd installed a reverse Bluetooth beaconing solution, which could get us an accuracy of around one meter from someone's phone. And we sort of wanted to pull out 
the locations of our people and their skills. So let's say, Adam, you like space and I like drones. And if right. the system's confident that we were stood in front of the same screen, it would come up, you know, hi, Matt and Adam, why don't you go make space drones, as an example? All oh, right. So it sounds like Ireland, you're, you're having some success in Ireland or you're using Ireland as an R&D project. I don't know. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sounds like Ireland seemed to be pushing forward with stuff, right? Actually doing real projects. Yeah, and I think that's because it's an interesting economic and political climate there in that there's a lot of companies that have relocated for a tax benefit and then have started to struggle in order to attract and retain the talent they need to operate a European headquarters. And so we're very much seeing that the war on talent is on and the battleground for it is the workplace. So, I mean, if you just look at some of the things that Google and Facebook have done to make their campuses more homely or some of the services they offer. That is about stopping the war for talent being about a race to the top for remuneration because we you know we are more than just kind of what you pay us. And if you can make someone happier in their workplace, even though you might have the sort of sinister guise of uh, trying to squeeze more productivity or getting people to work later, etc. These are all things that add up that make a benefits package better, I suppose. I gotta, I gotta tell you. Well, I'm not tell you. I gotta add to this conversation. Is I was in Ireland last year giving a lecture to the local ashray community, and why I loved Ireland. When I was all done that that whole trip, I was there for three weeks. The lecture was only an hour long, but we held it inside of a pub. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> it was the best lecture ever, ever I'd ever delivered. You know, and I just want to hats off to the local uh, engineering community in Ireland. I um, would be happy to come back and give another lecture in another pub anytime. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just putting that note. Kudos to Ireland. I've had nothing but great experiences in Ireland and with Irish people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's interesting. I love that uh, statement, the war on talent is on and the battleground is workspace because with demographics, I went to a lecture recently about demographics and how it's going to impact our industry. And it was, it was profound what they were saying. And, you know, you're right. I think it's all going to be about attracting talent and retaining them. And the quality of the workspace is paramount in that. I mean, when you go through an office and see people with headphones on, those people need their own offices. What they're saying is open office doesn't work for me. This is terrible experience and I'm zoning out. And they're probably more productive that way so that's interesting mm-hmm. i was doing a project kind of on that line with a um, italian automotive company and they'd invested in a set of under desk sensors so they'd had the you know the kind of data about actual desk utilization but they were quite a good client because they felt that it this data to make this a kind of italian expression didn't have enough passion in it so they wanted us to uh, work out how we could uh, basically get the personalities of their departments into that data so we could get them better work settings. Wow, that's interesting. So yeah, I want to go back to something you said about the edge in Amsterdam, which is I'll research that. And if there's, something, if there's any studies on that, I'll link it to the, to the show notes. But you said there were some legal battles over data ownership. Can you talk more about that? Because that's an interesting field, right? And that needs to be resolved, I guess, before things can scale. I'm certainly not an expert because I'm not privy to the insides of the conversations. Yeah. But my understanding is there was a battle between the tenants and the developer as to who owns the data that these systems were generating. It has been resolved, but I don't think I could accurately say which party won. That's interesting because my personal view on where this is all going, if you're extrapolating out, is you know data is, a big, is going to become a very valuable asset as it collects and compounds over time where you can get real-world information on like energy consumption, uh, equipment use, 
lifespans, how things are really sized and operating properly. You know, that information is going to become money ultimately, right? It can be sliced and diced and sold. So the ownership of that is actually quite an important component. You know, I guess if yeah. I was my old British land head here, as far as I'm concerned, British land would own that and they'd be selling it as they wanted to, right? <laughs> yeah, but I also think it's also probably worth pointing out I think people, we, this is when you start to get into the realms of trust and, you know, should you have access to data about me? And I think people get overly precious about the value of them as an individual when it mm-hmm. comes to their data. And I kind of want to say, you know, kind of get over yourself. Your data isn't anywhere near as valuable as an entire data set's worth. But if I can see sort of, you know, demographic size data, that is much more valuable to me than your individual piece of data. Yeah, this is network theory, right? The bigger the network, the more yeah. valuable the data. But so let's let's go on to my my bet noir, which is surveillance. So mm-hmm. we, there's a lot of talk about smart cities and smart buildings. So let's say smart buildings ultimately lead to smart cities, right? You have a cluster of buildings, you've got a smart city. And if you think of some of the developments in the UK, like in the city, like Broadgate, which is a cluster of AAA offices, which will ultimately probably be a smart, which will be smart buildings and then smart city or smart city a smart building cluster. Yeah. Does, for these buildings to be smart, is there, is it necessary for mass surveillance? So what I'm thinking of here is, you know, let's go forward 20 years. I, I arrive for a meeting. My meeting's in the calendar. As I approach the main entrance, the door opens. My pass is printed ready. It tells me what elevator to go to. I get in the elevator. I go up to the floor. I only have access to the floors and meeting rooms that I'm allowed, I'm scheduled to be in. All my all the stuff on my phone and my laptop is scraped and it's used and I can access all the audiovisual tools in the building. And so whilst I get services in terms of like seamless going to where I'm going, the rooms available, the AVs available, there is a, a data harvesting component that sort of says, Oh, it's Adam and Adam's here and he's done this, he's done that, and he's gone there. And you know, oh by the way, we've just sucked every contact out of his phone like Google does. Then we're going to package that up and sell it. Is that where it's going? Um, and it's all I'm your fault. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Sorry. I think the, <laughs> I think the buildings market's probably a little bit too immature to have the capability to do that as of yet. Right. Which is why I think it's a we're at an interesting point in kind of history with technology in the built environment, in the that we have the opportunity now to be the guardians of trust. I suppose in the same way when we go into a building, we trust that it won't fall down, that it's going to give us the right temperatures, that it's not going to suffocate us of air. I would like to think that we also have the expectation that the building won't remember things about us that we don't want it to, that the data won't be used for sinister purposes. And I think that's why as sort of, you know, built environment people, we are still at a point where we can sort of shape that. And I think I would call uh, to governments to start legislating against it mm. yeah that is the solution right there needs that i think as a society we've got to work out some data privacy laws that sort of meet somewhere in the middle where you can get the benefits of a smart city and a smart building but you can still retain some privacy what i mean by that if i go and buy a coffee with cash that's a private transaction if i buy it with apple pay everybody from tim cook down knows i've done it right so, you know, there's a, a dichotomy there in terms of privacy. And I guess if, if I go into an office building and everyone's scraping everything off my phone and laptop, 
which, you know, Google it, let's face it, Google and Apple and everyone's doing that right now. So <laughs> maybe I should just get over it. But it seems to me my data being packaged and sold, at least I should get a benefit from that, right? Or does it turn yeah. into a user agreement when you walk into a, a building, like you have a software user agreement that no, I mean, you could have the contents of Mein Kampf in your Microsoft user agreement. You're going to click yes, right? <laughs> yes, exactly, because no one's reading it. No. But maybe that's that's another sort of legislation that's required about make, you know making these privacy agreements actually mean something. And yeah. what where the built environments really struggle, I think, is in their interpretation of GDPR, which uh, the JATA, was it the general data protection regulation, which um, by the EU and the sort of whole idea is you have a right to know what companies, what information about you a company is holding and the ability to have that deleted. And what the kind of gut reaction of certainly some of my clients have been, oh, you can't do that because of GDPR. And it's like, no, you, like you can, it's just we have to explain to people what it's for, why we're using it and have a system in place so that we can delete it if they don't want to keep it. And I actually think that's quite a nice way to work. So we, so the first way that I kind of worked with this regulation was we were building a skills finder app because um, this particular client had an issue with collaboration in that they actually had quite a lot of diverse skills within their business, but nobody really knew about them. So what we had done is tied together the people database with the skills database and a set of Bluetooth beacons. So you would fire up this app you would press find a skill, you would type in what you need support with, and it would show you a list of who's in and their kind of years of experience in that skill. So you could find where they were in real time to go and have a chat. Now, initially, that was met with a lot of hesitation. Like, oh, I'm not really comfortable with people knowing where I am the whole time. Will my manager use this against me? You know, do people know when I'm on the loo? And so we had to put in a whole set of safeguards about what data could be accessed if you did go to the loo, is that the same as being outside the building? Do we just kind of remove that from the record? But I suppose the key, the two key things that we did were as part of your sort of profile settings, you had two buttons. The first one we called the invisibility cloak. So if you needed to go off grid, but didn't want to be removed entirely from the system, you could just press that and then you were in private mode, I suppose. And then the second one was a kind of kill switch. So mm. at any point you wanted to get off the ride, you could press that button and everything that we'd ever collected about you would be deleted. And that provided people with, you know, a sense of trust that as part of this system, they had they were in control of their own destiny. I like the idea of that. As long as that trust is backed up by legislation. So for our for our international listeners, so, so was it the GDP? What's the European law called? The GD... PR. GDPR. So that, at the moment, Europe is at the leading edge of trying to deal with some of the outrageousness, I suppose, for want of a better word, of the big companies like Google, et cetera, right? So they're trying to move some power into the consumer's hands by giving them a choice. The reality for me so far on that has been that I get a lot of annoying pop-ups when I go onto a European website and I have to click, yes, I know, and then it's business as usual. Uh, I think the way laws like this work is if they are actually are some teeth behind it, whereas if I've decided to opt out and it's they've not really opted me out, then I've got somewhere to go to get recourse. So kudos to the European Union for that. If that's going to spread outside of the European, I'm not sure. But going back to the data and the data ownership, the more we talk about this, the data ownership really becomes the key battleground issue in a way, right? Because let's say, I like the idea of that app you were talking about where you find the skills, but if I'm a headhunter and I can access that information, that is gold for me, right? I can find someone with that 
difficult skill set and then pitch them a job. Exactly. Yeah. So that becomes information that might get packaged and sold to headhunters or it becomes a firewall issue that has to be kept away from third parties, I guess, right? Again, these problems, I guess, are going to evolve as this whole field evolves. But, you know, at the moment, it's an evolving field. That's all we can say about it, I, I, I guess. Yeah, we just have to be practical. Yeah, that's really interesting. The Have you had any pushback from any clients or users so far or anyone's had a major, like, stampy footy and said, hell no, I'm not doing that? Oh, yeah, you always get one or two. But <laughs> it's about the quality of like, the culture program that you run about it. Um, so some clients I've seen, they do that and they swap people for a free coffee once a week and they're quite happy with that. Others, it's a sort of cool factor, you know, oh, what do you mean you're an analog person? <laughs> Can't talk to you, <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah, that's good. So, uh, yeah, it, you do get one or two and that that's their prerogative, but it's really interesting then to show them the records that Google has on everywhere they've ever been and then that sort of spooks them out a bit further and they realize that they've got bigger problems. Mm. You know, I look at the, as this discussion has been evolving and what comes to my mind on the positive note for the Internet of Things is that the data harvested, the general data that's harvested, for example, how a building is performing, can easily become public, can be used as a competitive element for owners of buildings and the developers in the world. You know, and I can see how it could be a threat to those who maybe not be up to the standards that some of these high-performance buildings are achieving, and as demonstrated by, you know, the data that's harvested through the Internet of Things. So I see, I'm starting to see some benefits to it. I, Adam, I don't know what your thoughts are, but, you know, there's certainly a path down there that is good for architecture, good for property development. No doubt about it. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. Just speaking with with Matthew now is really enhancing my understanding of this, because I'm a bit of a libertarian tinfoil hat guy deep down, or on top even. And uh, whilst I love technology, I do worry... I have this innate distrust of governments and big companies to do the right thing. You know, in my opinion, Mark Zuckerberg is a bloody psychopath and he cares about as much about my privacy as Adolf Hitler did. So I have no trust in these big organizations. Mm. Now, the challenge there is for government and society to develop checks and balances to that, right? But the actual, my understanding of this is really developed in this conversation and understanding how the data is a battleground, understanding how Mm. it is about the experiences and services because before this conversation, my thinking was down a level below that. And that's, that's you know, it's been worth the conversation just to get that out. Mm-hmm. You know, and it makes you realize how much is changing. When you're in the middle of change, it's hard to see it, right? But there is some really profound change going on at the moment in terms of attitudes and the application of technology. 
I mean, the other thing that occurred to me while we were having this conversation was, you know, maybe I'm just a dinosaur and, you know, I'm coming to the end of my career. Who cares what Adam thinks? My kids oh. probably wouldn't have any problem with any of this. It's, it's a good it's a good thing we just recorded that statement, Adam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Adam Muggleton admits he's possibly an old dinosaur. Oh, I'm for sure an old dinosaur. <laughs> just got crazy tendencies that keep me going. <laughs> yeah. Do you see the demographics playing out here, Matthew, when you do clients? I mean, there must, because you know, in office spaces at the moment, you've got everything from baby boomers down, yeah. right? So do you see the demographics playing out in your field? Oh, definitely. And it's that's the quality of what you design that really um, kind of as to whether or not this is successful. So I had a client who sort of said, well, you know, I might be a bank, but in all honesty, I feel like I'm more of a technology company that happens to have a banking license, which I think lots of people are sort of saying. And so he says, so as part of that, in order to compete, I need to go and get the best developers. When I invite them into the office for an interview to work here, like, yeah, I can compete in terms of salary, like we're a bank. But when they see the office, their face just drops and I don't hear from them again. So what am I to do? Do I rip this place out and put beanbags in? You know, if I do that, it means my senior leadership team will never stand up again. Like, we need to... <laughs> which I, quite, I did find that quite funny. It's Yeah, so being able to design for multi-kind of generations is actually really difficult. And what is a meaningful service for a millennial or a Gen Z is different to a baby boomer. You're right. But that all comes down to context in the end. And that's why I am really sort of strong about you need to go through an experience design to work out what smart means to you. Yeah, that's interesting. So this is where the competition for talent, this brings us back to the war on talent, right? Because success is going to be had or not had based on your talent, right? The ability to attract and retain that talent is going to be key. So that leads to the correct destruction of what we know now to what's going to be, right? And I know for my children who are sort of early in their career, they've just graduated university and they're going out into the workforce. Workspace and experience and meaning in their job really matter to them. I'm a child of the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, for me, it was all about the Benjamins. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. if you go into most engineering offices, they're goddamn awful, right? It's a cubicle life. And there's mm-hmm. always engineering offices that seem to be the last to evolve out of that. And I'd be interested to see your office. As your office was bang, bean bags. Slides. Good comment. Um, <laughs> but I will say, <laughs> I find it quite interesting. So, a good sort of soundbite for you in Dublin, Slack paid its developers 20% less than Microsoft did. But they, you know, people still really wanted to work there because of the environment that they had. You know, you could bring the dog in, you could put your feet up. It was a very different sort of vibe. And one thing that I do think people are going to start to do is just like you do on Amazon when you rate a product. People are now rating their workplace. So if you go to Glassdoor, you can type in your company and you can see yeah. exactly what people think of it. Yeah, that's interesting. Again, for our international listeners, Glassdoor is a great website. So if you work in North America, and I think Europe now, it works over there as well. You, yeah. if, you're, if you get an interview with Microsoft or any firm, pretty much, even my old firm was on it, you can plug that name in and you can get real reviews from real people that were there. And they will tell you, you know, what the culture was like, what the office was like what the toilet paper was like, you know, everything. And you can make a decision. It's like the, I don't know, TripAdvisor of companies. It's a mm, great resource, yeah. right? Cool. That, that, that 20% less, that Slack example, paying 20% less than Microsoft, God, there must be an engineering equivalent of that somewhere. If you're out there, let me know. Probably <laughs> huh. It's because we don't have, in my opinion, a work-life balance anymore. We have a, a work-life blur. 
And so that means that rather that we need to balance our kind of work life with our social life or personal lives much more so that if the expectation is that I need to stay late, uh, for instance, when I'm in London to have a phone call with someone in the US, then there should be services available to help me with my dinner. Let's say it's my turn to cook spaghetti bolognese for the kids. If my call starts at 7pm, I'm then not going to go to the grocery store and then go home and cook that and I'll have missed it. But if the on-site canteen can sort that for me, then that is another value add. And having those sorts of services, and particularly this is why I think something that a smart building gives meaning to, just by putting that service in someone's hand and you know, kind of moving that whole process flow down through to the kitchen is something we can really make a difference on and it didn't take too much coding. Mm. Mm. So then you're talking about the integration of other services like Airbnb or Uber or Uber Eats, right? These can all feed into this network of a smart city and a smart building. The lines become very yeah, blurry. So we, social services. The Uber one's a yeah. really good one. We've got a client at the moment who their building is going to be in central London and the only drop-off that cars can do is behind a gate. But if you're going to arrive by Uber, that's difficult to program into the number plate recognition system because you don't know the number plate until the car's picked you up. So we're looking at ways that you can take that number plate out of Uber so it's ready for when they arrive. That's interesting. Very interesting. I mean, that to me is a smart building because it knows it's expecting who's to arrive, but yet we didn't need to touch any of the building services. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. So what about, how does that fit in with your experience in Calgary, Robert? Because I found differences between Toronto and Calgary in terms of culture and technology adoption and office space. And frankly, I found the office space in Calgary when I was going out there regularly a couple of years ago was not was what I would call B plus office. Yep. And I wouldn't say there was many AAA offices. So yeah, I don't know. That, do you see any of this sort of adoption? Yeah, I mean, it is changing. I mean, I just to give you an example and, and tie it back to demographics, I moved here to so my offices. I'm on the 22nd floor looking over the downtown core. The area that I'm in, the average age of the, uh, is something around 36, 37 years old in this particular area of the city that I'm in. Right. I'm Adam, I'm like you. I'm, you know, relative to the people I'm riding up the elevators with, I'm the dinosaur. But, <laughs> you know, but when I think about it, you know, around this community are the free electric bikes. You know, anybody can grab them and take them anywhere you want. Uber is the way people get around. The offices, the newer offices or the older buildings that have been renovated or retrofitted are definitely catering to that crowd that demographic and the traditional oil and gas industry that we see in downtown calgary you know is is changing there's no doubt about it well again one of my takeaways here is the i'm now starting to see how smart buildings and smart cities are going to merge with the app economy the ubers mm. the ubers right the airbnbs <laughs> so you know you're working take take matthew's example you're working late i might have to stay over and then Airbnb are plugged into this somehow, and they find you something around the block where you can stay. But the, the interactions right. and opportunities are just endless, really. They are. But that, again, is quality of design because I've got this whole thing where I talk to my clients about cool versus creepy. Like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So, mm-hmm. we, again, comes back to that meaning idea, doesn't it? If this is something that someone finds valuable and it's actually helpful rather than just a bit weird and all about kind of squeezing productivity out of you they're two different services 
Yeah, that's interesting because you, if you read some of the reviews from people who've worked at uh, Google, at the Googleplex, yes, there's free food and there's pods to sleep in, but it basically becomes a prison camp ultimately, right, for coders. Yeah. It's the, the workhouse of the 21st century. It is, yeah. It's the factory of the 21st century. Wow. Listen, dude, you should be in advertising. You've come up with so many great liners. Cool versus creepy. I am so stealing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That full of it, one or other. But, but, but Matthew, I don't, I don't think you can make claim to a different vibe. That comes out of the 60s, doesn't it? The vibe, right? So, uh, How do you mean? Well, you know, back in the '60s, it was the flower child, and and everything was everybody was searching for a good vibe. Even the Beach Boys had good vibrations, right? Yeah. But I don't think they were. I don't think back then they were talking about cool versus creepy. So you can have ownership of cool versus creepy, but a different vibe that belongs to, I don't know, the Beach Boys, I guess. I, <laughs> but you, you had some other, you. <laughs> But some of the other ones, you know, we're going to talk about those in our in our roundup. You know, Adam, about rolling the chart and glitter. I love, you yeah. know, and that I mean, there's been some great bits of wisdom here. Where do you see ultimately this Internet of Technology flattening out? I mean, we're obviously on a on a rising curve right now. Where does it flatten out, and what does that look like, Matthew? Well, I think we're already uh, kind of approaching that in terms of capabilities of what sensors can do. For me, the next sort of wave of innovations is not going to be about actual new physical tech or a kind of leaping computing power. It will be how we stitch together stuff in new mm. ways. Like, I suppose it's just like your example, Adam, the fact that a late call triggers a service from Airbnb is actually a piece of innovation that didn't exist before, but there were already existing services. So it'll be about how we stitch things together. Yeah. That's yeah, good. That is interesting, man. So I, the thing I'm sort of thinking about here in my head as this conversation is going, I'm just trying to work out is technology – so what's leading at the moment? I think technology has led to this point, but I think we're hitting, as you say, a flattening of the curve because society and laws and people's ability just to plain cope with it are probably going to be the limiting factor for a little while. Would you agree with that? Oh, for sure. And I mean, just the amount of stuff that bombards me on my phone, I think we're going to see a trend that actually the services that we use that are the quietest and kind of leave us alone will be the ones that win. Because basically anything that upsets me or annoys me too many times, I'm just going to delete. And so we need to design Mm. quite nice user interfaces to these buildings. Like, uh, is it right that a person should have to bring a piece of hardware with them, if that's a phone, to enjoy a building? You know, the inner architect in me thinks the fact that someone's looking down rather than up at the structure is absolutely awful. So we need to find different ways of user interface to get them to communicate with the building. So maybe that's using like a voice assistant for some kind of help with something. Maybe that's a set of kiosks where I can use gesture control. I just think there's a different way to do it other than an app. And an app just feels a bit first version. Yeah, I mean, we're in the AOL days of the equivalent of AOL days, right? America Online days for smart buildings. I mean, 20, 25 years from now, it's going to be a a whole different ballgame. Exactly. Oh, and I found the book that I was thinking of. Remember we were talking about uh, some of the laws. A great book to read is The People Versus Tech by Jamie Bartlett. Mm, People. Uh, And that talks about how laws work on the premise that you have ownership and a demise in which you can control. And well, the internet is the exact opposite of those things, which is why laws don't quite work when it comes to digital. 
I'll put a link to that in the show notes. That's interesting because I think this subject, uh, a lot of people are fascinated by this and being able to read up on it is going to be important for people. So you were, I found you because someone told me you were, quote, a big thinker. And I have to say, having spoken to you now, I agree with that. And um, <laughs> sort of you were working at the sort of bleeding edge of where this is going. Are there any other Matthews out there? I mean, this must be a pretty elite group you're in, right? <laughs> Oh, 100%. You've got people like Kathy Farrington. I've spoken to her a few times. She's at Google. She has just the best insight to kind of like practically on the network uh, how you should pull this off and what the sort of best practices to get all of these kind of devices to work together. You've got the likes of uh, Eric Uvels at OVG, who is their chief technology officer, which in my opinion is the kind of godfather of the edge. And then you've got like Daryl Smith, who is also now at Google, formerly at Microsoft, who really spearheaded all of the work that they did at the Redmond campus. So it's not just there, there are plenty of us out there. Do you think the future belongs to Google's and the uh, the big current big players, or do you think there's space for someone to come in and disrupt that? I do think there's space because of the trust element. And yeah. So we certainly don't trust Facebook. I think people still trust Google, but that depends on what their actions are going to be. And we trust actions speak louder than words. So it's, uh, yeah, I think there's a case we've got to this space. God, that's a great saying with trust, actions speak louder than words. God, that was very Jean-Luc Picard of you. <laughs> okay, it's a, it's a brave new world, is it? Or the final frontier, that's the yes, one. Yes. Uh, that is awesome. Okay, well, we're coming up on the 50-minute uh, mark, so we're gonna, we normally close out the interviews with some sort of like pop quiz type quick fire questions. So uh, I'll start with that. So one of the things we're trying to do is provide some inspiration and some people to expose great work and sort of leading thinkers to junior engineers who are coming into the industry. So what advice would you give to females or women in STEM entering our business, the building services or the uh, smart city or smart building business? What advice would you give them? Oh, can I swear? Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Take no shit. (laughs) Love it. Oh, Absolutely. That is awesome. I couldn't agree yeah, more. With that. As a father of two daughters, I totally embrace that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fact you're, you're a female is not a hindrance. It's not a help. You're just a person who has just as much kind of value to offer as anyone else. And yeah, yeah don't, don't take any nonsense. Yeah. Excellent. Concur completely. Yeah. That's really good. Matthew, we have a, obviously there's a new breed of professionals coming up through academia going to be graduating with their degrees in architecture and mechanical engineering, interior design. If you had any words of wisdom for the graduating student in terms of what they ought to be maybe studying in their last years of studies or even maybe their first year out of school, what would that be? I think it's really important to retain the core principles of a discipline. And once you've got that foundation in, then I think you can start to look at the more quirky stuff and to develop your niche. Because if you can't hold your own in a conversation with someone who's done it that way for 20 years in order to convince them that your new thing is probably better, then I think you will fail on your mission. So maybe once you've cut your teeth on the basics, it's then time to really pursue what you think your niche is. That's really good advice. Actually, that is profound advice because there is a tendency from young people, I sound like an old man now, but there's a tendency to try and skip the fundamentals, right? And then go straight to the uh, shiny bit, which is what I would do if I was showing again. 
But really, yeah, you- and, and that has been my secret power, actually. So yeah. when I've had like a structural engineer give me grief that, oh, you know, none of this technology stuff works, it's all a pipe dream. And then you go, yeah, but you're being calc wrong there. You, <laughs> you get the smugness to begin with, but then also the credibility. Yeah, yeah, that is because whatever happens, you've got to have them fundamentals nailed, right? Because what we're talking about, technology is an application, whereas the fundamentals of engineering have to be in place, right? They don't change. Yeah. You know, Adam, one of these days we're going to have to put on a program about communication. And, you know, Matthew, the point there, on a more fundamental level, as an example, architects like to talk to architects. Accountants like to talk to accountants. Engineers like to talk to engineers. So what we're talking about here is that if you graduate a school and you're going to be the quirky guy and you're going you're gonna to die on your quirk sword uh, yes. be, because <laughs> the people you're talking to don't speak the language that you're speaking. So I think the mo- there's a message in there, obviously, is that if you're going to make a change or if you want to see change, you have to understand the language of the people that you're trying to communicate with in order to make that change. And if you don't, then you're just going to die on your sword. Exactly, yeah. Uh, that's those that <laughs> you answered them two questions really well actually better than probably anyone has to date your advice to women just to repeat that for everyone as a woman you should have no fear and take no shit right yeah. you're as good as anyone and probably better actually <laughs> as it turns yeah. out <laughs> <laughs> absolutely you're honest yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay Matthew listen thank you very very much for coming on the show that is awesome you've really really influenced the way I think about this I have to say and you've really moved me to a much more positive worldview on this and Thanks uh, for having me. yeah and show me where the the sort of battle lines are in terms of moving forward I have really really grown in my thinking here thank you very much for that thank you yeah matthew thanks very much i mean that's one of the things for adam and i the show obviously is for industry for people and that's how that area but ultimately it's a selfish endeavor adam and i have going on here because we learn just as much as our audience learns and you've certainly opened my eyes as well so thank you very much for that Thank you. And um, for anyone that might be in London on uh, May 8th, I'm going to get a cheeky plug in here. I'm presenting at uh, UBS near Liverpool Street Station on what I've learned from getting smart wrong. And where this sort of presentation has come from is I'm sick of going to smart buildings conferences and listening about these wonderful successes from teeny tiny deployments. And they never talk about why it's difficult to do it. So I've decided to uh, be brave and do five examples of where I got it a bit wrong and what I had to do to fix it. Actually, I love it. Love that it. is great, mate, because that's how you learn, right? You learn yep. through your mistakes and, you know, the clever people don't repeat them. <laughs> that's simple. <laughs> it's called Smart Buildings 19 if anyone wants to Google it. Awesome. I'll, again, I'll put that in the show notes and put that out there. Is there any? Is there anywhere people can find you online? I normally put in the um, your Twitter handle and your websites. Is there any other, anything else? I've got your Twitter handle. I've got your website. And I found a video of you talking about smart buildings. Oh, no. That doesn't sound like a good recipe. Uh, (laughs) Let's let's stick with the Twitter handle. And when at the end of the month, my new WSP uh, website, which is all about our smart places offering, will be finished. So I will send you the link for that. Yeah, if you send me a link for that, because we'll publish this episode next month, because it's, it's, it's very cogent and applicable right now. So we'll change our current schedule and we'll put you in next month and then... If you can send me a link to that video, that'd be awesome. Okay, great. Thanks. All right. Okay. Thanks very much. And uh, yeah, speak to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Thanks. Cheers, everybody. Thank you. Bye. 
Adam, another great interview. I learned some new phrases. One of that's particularly uh, impressive, rolling the turd in glitter. Oh, man, that guy should have been in advertising, I tell you. He had so many great one-liners. <laughs> you know, one time it was what, pearls before swine. Yeah, that's that what it. Is? Pearl, yeah. Pearls before swine, now yeah. it's rolling the turd in glitter, yeah. which, it, which exactly describes those products produced by manufacturers that are out of touch with reality yes you know in the world of architecture and property development if you think a widget is going to fix a building you're just rolling your widget in in glitter and it's crap it's crap right so i thought that was really good well you know my passion on in terms of user design and human fact human centered design his statement user is the true north of who we are designing for really resonated with me yeah. I just, I, you know, that is so, so true. And I and I think, you know, one of the things that's coming out of the Edifice Complex podcast here is there's some themes that are running through. And it doesn't matter whether the people are from the, you know, from Dubai, right, or from the UK or from North America. There are some themes starting to, to come out of our interviews. And I think maybe someday we'll, we'll do a show and we'll summarize some of those themes and where they're at. Yeah, you know, there's there's probably a book here. Once we've done a couple of years, we should go through, pick these themes out, and put them in a book or a downloadable book. Because you're yeah. right, there's common themes here, right? You know, and the thing that talk about right place, right time, right education, right? So he's an architect and an engineer. That's an unusual yeah. skill stack straight away, right? Right there. And uh, he did exactly what I'd have done if I'd been an architect. It crushed me. <laughs> Six months in an architect's <laughs> office would have killed me. I'd have thrown myself out the nearest window, I think. But, yeah. you know, he was bright enough to walk away from it and pivot, right? He pivoted. He's done what all t- good technology people do. He's had that fundamental education. And, you know, it's hard to walk away from an, an architectural degree, an architectural credential, right? But he did mm-hmm. it. But he's still not wasted it, right? Oh, he's right. pivoted, pivoted, and he's found this spot at this moment in time where He's got the fundamentals, he understands structure and engineering, he understands architecture, and he's he's applying that stack on top of that with technology to, to apply that to smart buildings. He's almost like got the perfect resume, if you think about it, to do well, for, this job. Yeah, for a change agent, Yeah, he, he has the perfect credentials as a change agent. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that people struggle with is that they see change, they want change to occur because they can see the benefit of it. But they've missed the fundamentals or or their timing's not right or they just haven't built the Rubik's Cube or solved their own internal Rubik's Cube so that they can be that change agent. He His own Rubik's Cube is, is elegant. You know, it's worked out really well for him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because as he said, when you go in and convince an architect and you don't know how difficult that is, right? You've tried asking yeah. for an extra bit of plant room space or air shaft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then you're going to go in and say, you know, this building you're doing, this piece of art you're drawing, I'm going to smart on that right up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but because he's got that background, yeah. he can yeah. speak with authority, you know, because the first yeah. thing they'll try and do is use their technical knowledge over you, right? So Absolutely. he can combat that immediately. Yeah. That is a, you know, that's some Jedi stuff going on there, Jedi Knight stuff going on there, right? <laughs> Well, both you and I have studied neuro-linguistic programming. Yeah. You know, developing rapport. Yes. Right? And and so having an architectural education degree or diploma gets you in the door. Yeah. Like they will, out of, out of professional courtesy, they will open up a conversation with you. What you do with that conversation after that yeah. 
is entirely up to you and yep. your and your ability to communicate. And um, yeah, and status yeah. matters in these conversations, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah, it yeah. matters. So, you might not. People may young people might not like that statement. Status matters. Mm. Get over it. <laughs> yeah, it does. There's, there's no shortcut in this, man. You've got and it, that that other statement you said about you know you've got to have the fundamentals down before you start putting the shiny whistles on them and start flashing lights, right? Yeah, because that's where your credibility and status comes from. You know, yeah. this is why I'm a big fan of the apprenticeship system, right? You know, to be going back, this went the apprenticeship system goes back to knights in the Middle Ages, right? You had to apprentice to a knight, and you had to repeat things till they were so ingrained in you they were second yeah. nature, right? So what's yeah. what's that for an engineer? It's apprenticing with a senior engineer, even though you've got your degree and mum and dad are really proud of you and they got that picture on the fireplace of woo-woo-woo, <laughs> right? But really where the value comes is if you're lucky, you wind up with a senior guy who's just about tolerant enough of you to think he can teach you something. And then when he's finished with you, you have certain formulas in there that are so second nature to you that you don't yeah. need, you remember them without even remembering them, Right. You know how to do something without even knowing you know how to do something. It's that ingrained. That's the path to mastery and excellence, right? And then you put onto that skill stack the other stuff. Then you're going somewhere, right? Those people who can sort of like push through that four or five-year training and get those fundamentals down so that they're just ingrained and then start adding on the other skill sets like data analysis or other things, those people are going to be unstoppable. Yeah. Potential of you being unemployed with that skill set are less than zero right, in the future. Yeah, yeah, totally. And who knew that Ireland was a hotspot R and D place for smart buildings, right? Uh, shout well, you, out to Ireland. No kidding. I, I, you know, it's probably one of. The, well, you travel a lot. I yeah. travel a lot. Ireland was uh, by far one of my most favorite countries to date that I've been to. I mean, the people are marvelous. There's no doubt about it. But anytime you can do a lecture and it's inside of a pub, yeah. I, Adam. It doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, very right? friendly people. We used to have an office in Ireland one of my old lives, and uh, it's a be great going out there because business is casual, everyone's friendly. Yeah, you know, and culturally, there's there's no real cultural barrier either. It's just easy to be there, right? Totally easy to yeah. be there. Yeah, you know, it's not, well, you know what it's like. You you go into New York, you know, to call on an engineering firm there or an architectural firm. It's like. Oh, yeah. Holy, this is actual work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to actually do work when I go to New York. You go to Ireland, it's like, it's not like that at all. Someone you know? said to me, calling on an engineer in an architect's office in New York is like going through like American Idol. You know, you got to go there, <laughs> do <laughs> your song and dance. <laughs> and Simon Cowell gives you the thumbs totally. up or thumbs down, right? <laughs> totally. It's totally like that. Yeah, totally like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's good. I like his advice to... You know, women. That was good. You, you really jumped on that one because you've got two daughters that are. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I don't want any barriers for my daughters in their work life, right? Yeah. Yeah. I thought take no shit. That's good advice. <laughs> yeah. You can, you know, like you can do a whole soliloquy on advice for women. You can ramble on, ramble on, blah blah blah. But at the end of the day, it's take no shit. Yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to take crap from anybody. You're as good as anybody else and, you know, just stand your ground. This, so that he's there was one saying by Margaret Thatcher, which I always thought was the best advice, but this might, might be the next bit. So the best advice she always said was stop complaining and just be better than the men. Yeah. Right? True. And 
So if you add take no shit to that, you've got everything you need as a woman <laughs> in this business, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You made a statement which was good, which is data is the battleground. Is a battleground. Yeah. The new battle is a new de- battleground. Yeah, it is. And the ownership of that, because that's going to have extreme value. You think about it. Google's share price and Amazon, to a large degree, is derived purely on their ability to harvest and use data. Yeah. Right? So that's a multi-billion, billion, 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 billion company, right? So you might say a big landlord, like, I like British land, you're familiar, right? They own loads of AAA buildings. Over time, they're going to accumulate a data mine that they can then slice and dice and sell. That's going to become an asset. Yeah. That will sit on their balance sheet one day, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. He also made a statement, and you've talked about this before. We've had guests on that represent that. And he used the bank as an example. You know, the traditional bank is, you know, is a source of financing certainly a, a revenue generator, you know, the share value associated with banks versus a technology company that offers banking services. Yeah. That was, that, that's when I knew my brain was going to be a bit exploded on this one. When he came out with the experiences and services, it was really matter. And that's what people miss. I certainly miss that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this whole philosophy, though, goes back. And when I think about, for example, UPS at one time, and not at one time, they still do this. You know, for example, and I think it was HP. They had a partnership with HP. So if you owned an HP computer and it needed warranty work, UPS would pick it up. And you would think that that HP computer was on its way to an HP facility somewhere in North America. But UPS actually had an HP service center in their facilities. And it, was, it wasn't going to HP. It was going to UPS. And, you know, and, and I think about, again, going back into my history – I was over in, I think it was Grastine or uh, I think it was Grastine in Denmark. And I was with a guest of Dan Foss out there and we were into their drive facility. And inside the Dan Foss facility was a Xerox DocuCenter. Yeah. And what happened is that when the drive order came in from, say, Japan, which ultimately that drive ended up getting shipped to, you know, probably an English speaking country. Yeah. But the documentation, so the order was two parts. It was for the part for the product itself, and then there was an order for the document. And when that PO came in, the document part of it went to the Xerox DocuCenter. And Xerox, inside the Danfoss facility, produced the documentation, charged Danfoss a fee for doing so. The drive came out of the factory part of it, entered on a conveyor belt within the same facility into the DocuCenter. The box was opened up. The documents were dropped in. box was closed up, sealed, and then went to shipping. You know, and so there's that integration of services within, you know, two big companies, Xerox yeah. and Danfoss, yet working together within a common facility. And the Internet of Technology is, in many ways, is a, is a representation of that. It's bringing together these areas. He made a statement about, I asked him about where does he see the future and where does this thing flatline? And he said, innovation won't be the technology itself. Rather, it will be sewing together or stitching together the different technologies that currently yeah. exist. So that's the battleground, stitching together all these disparate technologies and then the social mm. rules and norms and laws around them. That's yeah. where, that, that's where the, the rubber hits the road, right? And that thing he was talking about as well, the war on talent is on and the battleground is a workspace. That is so true. Yeah. You know, in my last business, we used to say to people, okay, if they got through three interviews, you can have what laptop you want. Do you want a laptop or desktop? Let me know. Mac or Windows, let me know. iPhone or Android, let me know. Right? Uh, yeah. You know, if you want to do 
some homework, that's fine. But there's a deal there, right? The other deal is you better be great at your job or we're going to fire you. But, you know, yeah. and we used to have all, we had software by subscription, so we always had the current stuff. And a lot of people just say to me after they started, say, wow, your, your firm's really up to date. We didn't get this at the other firm. So for us, that was a hiring advantage, right? Right. It didn't, they got the same sort of market rate salaries, but they were happy with the conditions. And I sort of sensed that early on, but that really is going to be the thing, right? If I'm a, yeah. let's say I'm a 29 years old, I've got an engineering degree. Do I go and work in an old office in a cubicle where they chuck a moldy old sandwich in for me at lunchtime? Or do I go to a place where I get some movement and I can have the device I want and I can do some flexi time? Yeah. So, you know, I take a drop in salary for the better space, really, in the better conditions. Oh, yeah. Yeah, t- yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm st- right out of my window here. I'm looking at Nexon's build- big building and RSM, big accounting company, right, building. And in all of these windows, and all the cubicles that exist there, I'm, you know, if I'm 30 years old, I'm not thinking cubicles. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think the sort of the young generations are going to put up with that stuff. No, not at all. He he said another statement, which I think is is really, really important for technology producers. And that is, is that technology that leaves us alone wins. If it harasses us, it will be deleted or ignored. Yes. I think that that is a, that statement right there for those that listen and those that have a way to influence technology producers is that if it harasses us, we will not use it. If it allows us to exist without it being in our face, then it has a place on our radar screen. Otherwise, it's gone. There were so many good lines like that, man. It's, it's yeah. Definitely being advertising. <laughs> it's just Mr. Schooling. <laughs> no, that, yeah. that, that, I feel so energized by this. I feel my, I can't stop thinking about how the in, how smart buildings will sort of stitch in with the current apps and how they're going to develop. It's going to be really fascinating. It yeah. goes back to what Steve Burroughs said. This is the best time to be an engineer and work in the building sector, right? Because you're going to witness a fundamental change in how workspaces evolve and how buildings evolve in your career. Yeah, totally. He also made another statement, which is timeless. It's not a new thought. It exists in all good building business practices. And that is, is that with trust, action speaks louder than words. Yes. Right. And that, that is a principle that is, does, will never age, you know, but its application to the technology, the internet of things is really apropos, yeah. right? If the yeah. producers or the data miners can't be trusted, woo. Well, you think about it right, right now, if you think about it, right, Facebook are having trouble because they got people don't trust them. And yeah. Apple have really taken this sort of white hat, white knight principled stand on privacy. So of all the big tech companies at the moment, Apple respects your privacy the most. So I'm not saying that because I'm in the Apple cult, but they don't package and sell your data, right? They're, they're a little bit careful. They're not clean, but they're a little bit careful about who can go put mm. an app in their store, right? Right. Whereas, you know, like Facebook's and Google are straight up, you know, we're, we're scanning all your stuff and you know, we're selling that and good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and that's starting yeah. to play out in the marketplace as Facebook are having a problem with trust, and that's not going to go away. I don't think Google is the next one to fall once they finish with Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Know, so if you're a big company, move into that space where trust becomes a feature. That might be a competitive advantage, right? Especially if you're very clear about it, and the competitors aren't. Yes. 
You know, if you, like so, if Apple is making a statement about their pol- data policies and it's transparent and people can see it, that's a completely different experience than if you're the Facebooks of the world and the Googles of the world, where it's yeah. just not quite clear what's happening with with oh, your yeah. data, right? Because yeah, as that onion gets peeled back, everyone's more and more horrified. Right? Every every layer of Facebook oh, gets peeled back. Yeah, it gets right? worse and worse. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know where Facebook goes, but. I yeah. personally don't trust them, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone with that. <laughs> that goes back to being an old, old, cynical. Yeah. So what you just heard there, listeners, <laughs> was the Tim Fall hat going back on my head. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I think that's a good we place. Have, yeah, we <laughs> all have a Tim Fall hat in our closet somewhere. <laughs> yeah. That's a good place to I've got to shine up my Tim Fall hat and get in my air raid shelter. <laughs> oh yeah. There we go. Always a pleasure, Adam. You know I love doing this with you, and uh, it's the more people we talk to, it's yeah, it's just it's a real treat, yeah, real pleasure. It's going to be interesting to get the feedback on this because I think this is a is a good one. If if you've got any interest in smart buildings and where it's going, this is a good one to listen to. Yeah, right, man, that was great. I'll see you on the next one. All right, Adam. Take care, man. Take care. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.